tonight. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Hosea chapter 7. The book of Hosea chapter 7. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 958. Past two Sunday nights um, after small groups, I've been standing outside on the front yard um, while our two boys run around like rabid honey badgers, as they are prone to do at times. And uh, two weeks ago, I won't name any names, but one of our sons had the other in a headlock, which I was fine with, if we're being honest. Um, but then they started getting close to the sidewalk, and I started having this premonition of, of a head going into concrete. So I said, I, I should probably intervene here. And uh, so, of course, what happened is something that has happened many times, which is I gave a warning. That warning was not heeded. So I gave a more stern warning, and that second warning also fell on deaf ears. And so the third time, I raised my voice even louder and sternly shouted, Stop! Okay, I got your attention. I got their attention, too. Now, I imagine all of us have probably been on the receiving end of one of those. Some of us have been on the giving end. And if all you heard, if you just happened to walk up and all you heard was that third warning without any context, it might sound kind of harsh. You might think, what? That sounded a little rough there, Matt. But at least in this instance, uh, it was necessary that I warn them so severely because I was trying to stop them from doing something foolish, something that would have brought harm on themselves. And in the book of Hosea, we find God doing something similar with the people of Israel, whom he describes as his son. In, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 10, which we're not reading this morning, God describes himself like a lion roaring at his people. He says, when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. There have been times where I've had to sort of speak so sternly with our boys that they literally break down in tears because they're afraid. And God says that's what He does with the people of Israel. He warns them so severely that He's like a lion roaring at them, and they come trembling in fear. And the point of that is to say that God is not a robot who just kind of says in this monotone voice over and over, warning, 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 warning. He is a father who wants His children to come to their senses and so he warns them. He says, here's, here's the law. Here are the rules. Here are the guidelines to living in our house. And when they step outside those lines, he tells them, now let, let me remind you about the consequences for this. And when they keep stepping out of that line, when they keep crossing his law, when they keep disobeying him, when they keep rebelling at him, rebelling against him, and they won't listen to him, he has no other choice but to yell to roar at them, to get their attention. And they may find that scary. They do find it scary, and perhaps we do as well. But all that God says and does flows out of His perfect love and wisdom. I don't always get it right as a dad, but God does. And so we would do well to listen. And so let's read together. We're going to begin in Hosea chapter 7 
and verse 14. God says, They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. We're going to pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for how you spoke to your people then. And I pray that you would help us to hear this, not just as a word to them way back then, but to us today. Help us to understand this in its appropriate context and that we would apply it. And most importantly, that we would be not only hearers of your word, but doers as well. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I want you to hold your place here in chapter 7 and flip over with me to Hosea chapter 11 for just a moment. This is a passage that we read last Sunday. And I want you to look especially at Hosea chapter 11 verse 7. God says, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. Now, if you were to just kind of pick up your Bible and thumb through it and then put your finger down on Hosea eleven seven and read that verse totally out of context, you might find that troubling because what it sounds like God is saying is His people really need His help and they call out to Him in genuine desperation and He doesn't answer them. So imagine a child, right, who is in danger and they call out to their father, I need help, please help me and he ignores them. How could that possibly be loving, right? But when you read Hosea 11 verse 7 in context, you find that there is something not entirely genuine about Israel's calling out to God. So go back to Hosea chapter 7. We began this morning with verse 14 where God says, "...they do not cry to me from the heart." So apparently it is possible to call out to God in a way that is false, in a way that is not genuine, to cry out to Him but not from the heart. So instead of thinking of Israel as a child who has fallen down, for example, and, and calls out to their father for help, I'm hurt, please come help me. Think instead of Israel like a son who totally ignores the wisdom of his father, but then calls him as soon as he gets in trouble, hoping that dad is going to come and bail him out. Now, I've heard stories like that of people who, you know, prodigal sons or prodigal daughters who go out and they, they, they totally ignore what their parents taught them. They live their life however they want, and then eventually they find themselves utterly broken. They find themselves at rock bottom. 
the consequences of their sin lead them to genuine remorse for what they've done. And in desperation, they call someone whom they have turned away from so many times, and they look for help and restoration. That is not what Israel is doing here, and God knows it. Israel is not like the son who has gotten to the end of his rope and then in desperation calls out to his father and says, I have messed up and I need you to come and help me. Israel is the son who has gotten into trouble and just needs just enough help to get out of that trouble so that he can go back to doing what he wants to do. It's helpful for us to see that. Not so that we can point our fingers at them and say, look how foolish they were, but so that we can look in the mirror and ask ourselves, have I done that? Am I doing that same thing? So what we need to see with with crystal clarity this morning is what I'm going to call the foolishness of false repentance. The foolishness of false repentance. Israel claims to... Um, to be calling out to the Lord, and yet it is absolutely false. And there are several times throughout this book where God has been telling Israel about their sin and warning them about judgment, and it's, it looks like they get it. It seems like they're, they're ready to, to come clean, to repent, to come back to Him. Back in, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, it says, "'Come, let us return to the Lord.'" For He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck struck us down, and He will bind us up. So God has told them about their sin. He's told them about the consequences of their sin. And then you hear, come, let us return to the Lord. It seems like there's about to be this beautiful picture, this beautiful response of, of them turning away from their sin and turning back to the Lord. And yet Israel's repentance is fickle because just a few verses later... God says that their love is like a morning cloud. Their love is like fog that settles down overnight, but as soon as the sun comes up and starts to shine, it burns away. And here in chapter 7, verse 16, God says they return, but not upward. Or or one way that could be translated is they return, but not to the Most High. They, They go somewhere, but not back to God. And then he says they're like a treacherous bow. So Israel is like a bow that can't shoot straight. The arrow goes somewhere, but it never hits the target. It doesn't go where it's supposed to go. And in a similar way, God's words to Israel get them all stirred up and moving, but they don't actually return to Him. I came across this passage in in Ezekiel this week that is very similar to this one, but the way God says it to Ezekiel just made me say, okay, I need to step back for a moment and think about this. Listen to what God said to Ezekiel. He he said, they come to you. So he's speaking to the prophet. He says, they come to you. The people come to you and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. Now, there are times in the Bible where God says that what people try to do is they try to get 
false teachers, false prophets, people who will just tell them what they want to hear. And he, he warns them about the danger of that. But that's not what he's talking about in Ezekiel. He's talking about a genuine prophet, someone who is genuinely speaking the word of God to them. And he says, they come to you and they sit before you and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Ezekiel, they're going to come and pay attention to your preaching. They're going to sit there and they're going to nod along and they're going to take notes. They may even find what you have to say beautiful and stirring. And on the way out the door, they're going to shake your hand and say, good word this morning, brother Ezekiel. But then they're going to go and get in their car and they're going to drive off and they're never going to think about it again. They're not going to do it. They're not going to consider the challenge that you've laid out in the word of God. God goes on to tell Ezekiel, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. They're going to enjoy your preaching, Ezekiel. They're going to think about how beautiful and moving and stirring it is. They may even have tears in their eyes as they listen to it. But then they're not going to listen to it. They will ignore its demands on their lives. So ask, we have to ask ourselves the question, how many times has God's Word got me all stirred up about something, but then I never really follow through? And this is not just for you. Sometimes when, I, when I'm preaching, I get moved. I get stirred. But then it's just as tempting for me to walk out the door and say, wow, what a lovely day it is out here. And then go on my way, eat my lunch, and never think about it again. That is the foolishness of false repentance. It's getting all worked up, all stirred up, all moved, but then never actually obeying what God's Word has called us to do. It ought to be sobering to think about. Look at what God says here again in, in chapter 7, verse 14. He says, They do not cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. They, they, they wail on their beds. I mean, they lay out and just weep. The evidence of our sincerity of how seriously we take God's Word is not how emotional we are in our pleas to Him. Although we, we may experience strong emotions, the evidence is in whether we obey the Lord. Israel cried and wailed on their beds, but they did all of that while they continued to rebel against the Lord. And that kind of self-deception, it was not limited to Hosea and Ezekiel's generation. During his ministry, Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Again, every single one of us ought to be asking ourselves, is that me? Do I call out to the Lord, but not from my heart? Do I honor Him with my lips while my heart is far from Him? And so I want to try to help us this morning to discern our own hearts. And to help us do that, I want to point out a few common examples of of false repentance. What are some things I could look for in my life to determine whether 
I am genuine or false in the way that I repent and in the way that I worship the Lord. The first kind of false repentance is we refuse to fully acknowledge and accept responsibility for our sin. That's the first step. We have to tell the truth about what we've done. And when we, when we confess our sin to God, we're not informing Him of something He didn't know. It's not like God says, oh, wow, I never realized that. He already knows. But He wants us, as John says, not to walk in darkness, but to walk in light. We can't have fellowship with the one who is light while we're at the same time walking in darkness. So genuine repentance always, always involves more than confession, but it's never less than that. We have to start with a thorough, accurate truth-telling about what we have done wrong. And this particular kind of counterfeit, if you want to call it that, can show itself in, in a few ways. It can look sometimes like vague or partial confession. So we apologize for something small, but we don't own up to the whole thing, right? Or maybe we say something vague like, I know I've made mistakes in the past. Even worse, we use the passive voice. voice. Anytime we're confessing sin, we always need to use the active voice, not mistakes were made, right? That's, how, that's, the, that's the way we sort of, mistakes were made. Well, which mistakes and by whom? I messed up, and here's how. That's, that's what it means at, to, to confess in a genuine way. And so it's, it's usually not helpful just to say something vague or partial when we need to deal with very specific mistakes that we have made. This kind of false repentance can also look like um, casting blame on others. So we, we may acknowledge that we've done something wrong, but then we try to shift as much blame as we can onto someone else. This is as old as the Garden of Eden. Because when God came to Adam after he and Eve had sinned, what did Adam say to God? He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So if you take Adam at his word, then... He, he did eat the, the fruit, but it's also partly Eve's fault because she's the one who gave him the fruit. And, and it's kind of also God's fault because he's the one who gave Eve to Adam, right? The woman whom you gave to, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. So it's not entirely my fault. Now, Eve certainly was not innocent. But Adam, in that moment, didn't need to think about what Eve had done. He needed to own up to what he had done wrong. He took the fruit, he did not stop Eve when she took the fruit. And even earlier than that, he did not intervene when the serpent began to sow doubt about what God had said. The serpent comes along and starts speaking to Eve about, did God really say this? That was Adam's prompt to step in and say, oh, in fact, I was there and he did say this. He said, we can eat of any tree in the garden, but not this one tree, for if we eat of this tree, we will surely die. But Adam didn't do that. So as long as we're pointing the spotlight at the sin of others, we're not adequately dealing with our own sin. And then one more way that this kind of counterfeit repentance can look is, is when we compare our sin to others. And this is related to that one. Not where we're trying to cast blame on someone, but where we try to sort of point and say, well, you know, 
look at their sin as a way of trying to take the spotlight off of our own. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable about a man who did that. He went into the temple. He walked right up to the front and stood up in front of everyone, and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like Like other other men. And then he started listing some of them. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Now, we're not always that forthright about it. Uh, You know, I don't know that any of us have ever done anything quite that bold, if you want to use that word, where we just stand up and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not as bad a sinner as those people. We're often much more subtle, but we still do the same thing. We say things like, we're all sinners. No one is perfect. Again, those statements are true. But if we say them in an attempt to minimize our own sin, then we're simply trying to shield ourselves from humility and from accountability. There comes a time when what we need to talk about is not the fact that everybody's a sinner and nobody's perfect, but here is what I have done wrong. And here are the specific ways that I have transgressed God's Word. And here are the specific sins from which I need to turn. So the first kind of of false repentance is when we refuse to fully acknowledge and accept responsibility for our sin. And the second uh, form that this takes is when we try to escape or dictate the consequences for our sin. So we, we, we try to get out of any trouble that our sin may cause us. An example of this is um, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. So the, the prodigal son comes to his father and says, I want you to go ahead and give me my inheritance. The father does it. He takes all that property and goes and he squanders it on reckless living. And eventually he finds himself broke. He finds himself destitute. He finds himself looking at pig slop and thinking that looks appetizing. And so it says that he comes comes to his senses. And when he comes to his senses, he says this to himself. I want you to listen to what he says to himself. He says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? In other words... My dad has people who work for him. They're not even his son. They're his, his employees. And they eat better than I, than I am. So he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he has this speech rehearsed in his head. I'm going to go up to him and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Just just give me some work to do. Let me come back and work for you so that I can make some money and I won't be hungry anymore. But when the prodigal son gets home and he sees his father, something changes. He goes up to his dad and he begins his speech word for word. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, period. And then he stops. He doesn't say, treat me as one of your hired servants. He doesn't say, give me a job. He says, I'm sorry. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And then he stops. He does not try to dictate the consequences 
He doesn't try to say, Dad, I think this would be reasonable if you were, I don't expect you to let me live in the house, but if you'll just give me a job, give me a paycheck, then, then I'll leave you alone. He just leaves it up to the Father. That is genuine repentance. Not trying to say, here, here, here what I, here's what I think the consequences should be, or, or let me get out of this in some way, but just, I'm sorry, here's what I've done wrong, period. So when we try to escape or dictate the consequences of our sin, we're showing that we're not truly sorry for what we did. We're just sorry for all the trouble it has caused us. Having kids has helped me to see this sometimes in comical ways where they do something wrong and all they can think about is, do I still get to do that thing? When do I get out of timeout? Are you going to really take that toy away? And what I say to them is, as long as you're thinking about the consequences, you're not actually being sorry for what you did. And yet, here I am, 33 years old, and I do the exact same thing. We all do. That is a form of false repentance, trying to escape or dictate the consequences. And then the third form of false repentance is when we just feel bad without actually pursuing change and repair it is possible to feel bad about yourself and to think that you're just an awful person without actually repenting. God said of Israel there in Hosea chapter 7, verse 14, that they gashed themselves. That's, a, that's an odd thing to say, isn't it? Um, we know of, of other people in the Old Testament who worshipped a false god named Baal and who in an attempt to worship that false god committed literal acts of of self-harm. That was apparently a part of Baal worship. And so with all the other references to Israel worshipping Baal in this letter, that's most likely what God means when He says that they they gash themselves, that they're, they're, they're not doing what God said is genuine worship, but they're participating in some kind of false worship. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, okay, well, we, we don't still have Baal worship or anything like that, but we, we still have people who do that today in a literal sense. We, we should be very clear that God does not require His people to do that. He is opposed to that. And if that's something that, that you or someone you know struggles with in any way, then I, I want to just encourage you to talk to someone and, and get some help because that is not something that, that God would ever um, ask one of His children to do, to get His attention. The cross is all we need to get God's attention. So we, we don't need to harm ourselves in some way. But even in a figurative sense, even if you never physically harm yourself, there are many people who do this in a figurative sense. I think I said even, in a, even if you don't do that in a literal sense. Either way, even if you never physically harm yourself, there are still people who do this figuratively speaking. They, they, they beat themselves up, as we, as we often say. They talk about what an awful person they are. God says of Israel that they, they wail upon their beds, but simply talking about how sinful you are is not the same as actually taking responsibility and truly repenting. In fact, in, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul describes the difference between what he calls worldly grief and godly grief. 
So you can feel bad about your sin, but not in a way that actually honors God. Lots of people feel bad for their sin. Lots of people have a conscience, and they do something, and then they feel bad about it. But then they keep doing the thing that makes them feel bad. That's what Paul calls worldly grief. But godly grief, he says, produces repentance. Godly grief is something that God does in me by His Spirit. If I'm a child of God, then when I sin, God's Spirit convicts me of my sin. I feel bad about it. But genuine godly grief leads me beyond conviction, leads me beyond that sort of feeling bad about it to to confessing my sin and to turning from it and trusting in the Lord for forgiveness and for healing and cleansing. Godly grief causes me to lean on God's grace, not just His grace to remove consequences, but His grace to repent and to accept whatever He deems wise. And so I want to be really clear because as I was spending time uh, thinking about, you know, false repentance and genuine repentance, I thought, you know, the danger here is that we would start to think, well, okay, I've got to just sort of put a microscope to my life and I've got to fine-tune my repentance until it's acceptable to God as if that becomes a work that I have to do in order for God to accept me. And then if that's the case, then I'm not actually fully trusting in Him. I'm not leaning on Him. I'm not, I'm not leaning on His grace. I'm actually trusting in my own ability to apologize just right or to confess thoroughly enough or something like that. So I'm not suggesting that our hope rests on how good our repentance is. Our hope is not in the quality of repentance. Our hope is in the breadth and length and height and depth of God's mercy and grace toward us. So it's not that I have, to, I have to have this perfectly qualified repentance and then God will forgive me and accept me and that sort of thing. It is that He accepts me by grace. He accepts me through faith in Jesus. And then as I grow in Him, I should be growing in my repentance. Turn over a few pages to chapter 11. Um, you can hear God's compassion and mercy. We read chapter 11, verse 7 at the beginning where God says, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. But then notice what God says in the very next verse, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those were two cities that were completely destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah earlier in the Old Testament. So God says, I'm not going to allow you to be like that. He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And then he says in verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Now, we need to be clear about what those verses don't mean. They don't mean that God is going to 
spare Israel from all consequences. As history unfolds, Israel later after this is going to be taken into exile by the Assyrians. But God is saying, I'm not going to allow you to be totally wiped out. Why? Why why isn't He going to allow them to be wiped out because their repentance is perfect? No, they never get it right. Because His unearned compassion is warm and tender. That's why He turns from His wrath, is because of His own compassion, not because of the perfection of their repentance. And the reason He extended mercy to Israel back then was not only because of His compassion for them, but also because of His compassion for us. I want you to understand the reason God destroy does not allow, excuse me, the reason God does not allow Israel to be destroyed in Hosea's lifetime or, or after Hosea's lifetime is not only because God had compassion for those people, but because He had compassion for you and for me. How? What do you mean, Matt? God's primary purpose in the Old Testament is not building or preserving a, a nation. It's not about Israel, if by, if by Israel we mean an ethnic nation. God's primary purpose is sending a Redeemer. That's what He said in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve sinned, right? He said to Eve, you're going to give birth. There's going to be an offspring who's going to be born of a woman And that offspring, he's going to have his his heel struck by the serpent. But then he's going to crush the serpent's head. There is a redeemer, someone born of a woman who is going to come. And he is going to make all things right. He is going to be the one who is going to restore all things. And then as, as the Old Testament unfolds, God makes it very clear that this redeemer is not going to come just from any nation, but he's going to come specifically from this one nation. And so by preserving Israel, God is preserving His promise of that Redeemer, the one in whom rests the hope of restoration, not just for one nation, but for all nations. Jesus is that Redeemer. He is the descendant, capital D descendant of Abraham and of David. And our hope does not rest in the quality of our obedience, but in the quality of His obedience. He was tempted in every way, and yet He never sinned. And God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the exchange that God offers to us. Not that, Matt, you can try to work and work and work until you perfect your repentance, and then, and only then will I accept you. But, Matt, I will accept you as you are right now, sinful as you are, imperfect as you are, and I will make you my son. I will give you the righteousness of Jesus, the one who had no sin. I will give you His righteousness by faith. And then, once I've made you perfectly righteous, then I'll work on you. Then I'll sanctify you. Then I'll teach you what it means to walk not in the darkness anymore, but to walk in light, to come out of the darkness, to come out of thinking that you can live your life and conceal your sin because, Matt, I know it. I've seen it. I sent my son to die on the cross for it. And you don't have to try to hide it anymore because it's not doing anybody any good. It's not doing me any good. It's not doing you any good. All it's doing is harming you. And so, Matt, you can come out of that darkness and you can walk in the light Because I've already promised you that anything you bring to me, anything you reveal to me in the light, I've already done what's necessary to forgive you and to cleanse you from it. 
And so salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's not just that God says, okay, Matt, I can see all the sin you've done in the past and I forgive you of that. He says, I see it all. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. There is nothing that could happen in the future that would make God stop loving one of His children. There is nothing that I could do that would cause God to say, I give up on Him. Because salvation was never by works. It was always by grace. It's not a result of works, lest anyone should boast in themselves. But once God has saved someone by grace, then that, that life that has been saved by grace, that life that is trusting in Jesus, should begin to bear the good fruit of repentance. And it is a sign of spiritual maturity, of growing up in Christ, that our repentance would become more thorough and more genuine by God's grace. The thing is, we've been talking the past two Sundays about, about the foolishness of trying to trust in ourselves, the foolishness of, of trying to just do the bare minimum of, of false repentance. And it goes back to that story about uh, two boys wrestling and in danger and a father who shouts at them and says, stop, because all you're going to do is hurt yourself by continuing in that way. The more we acknowledge and confess and turn from our sin, the more we are acknowledging and confessing and boasting in the grace of God in Christ. Because the more open I am with the Lord, the more honest I am with Him and with myself about my sin, then the more I am seeing how much grace He has shown to me. If I try to say I'm not that bad a person and these things I do, they're not that bad, then what I'm saying is the cross wasn't all that necessary. I don't really know why God did that because I'm not that bad of a person. But when I come before the Lord and I say, Lord, I am, I am fallen, I am a sinner, and here are the ways that I have sinned then what I'm saying to him is I'm saying with every sin that I confess, I'm saying thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the empty tomb by which I am justified and counted righteous in the sight of God. If I try to conceal or excuse or justify my sin, all I'm doing is minimizing my need for grace. But when I own up to it, and when I endure the pain of humbling myself before the Lord and sometimes before others, He has already pledged to forgive and to cleanse and to transform. And if you don't believe me, the cross and the empty tomb are His guarantee. They are His guarantee that He will forgive, He will cleanse, and He will change those who come to Him in genuine faith. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in, in a moment here, and this is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. The song we're going to sing this morning is Before the Throne of God Above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. For while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart.
When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. It's not the perfection of our obedience. It is the perfection of his obedience. So let's look to him. Let's trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love, your grace, your holiness. We're thankful, Lord, that you don't sweep our sin under the rug, but you're a God of justice, one who deals with sin. And yet, Lord, in your great love, you have found a way at the cross to, at the same time, pay the penalty for sin and also to forgive sinners without making us pay the penalty for it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to presume upon your grace, but that we would look to Jesus, our great high priest, that we would trust in him, that we would run to him and cling to him and to the perfection of his obedience. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.